Welcome to the 24th episode of Sound the Foghorn. As always, I am your host, Mark DeLuke. We've taken a little uh, week and a half hiatus uh, on the show. We had some other things um, come up over on the site, but uh, I'm happy to be back with you talking San Francisco Giants baseball. Of course, the season has gotten off to a fantastic start for a franchise that, well, you know, I think there was reason to be excited but most of that excitement was centered on the future of the team. Most of it was centered on the prospects and the ever-improving farm system, on the potential for big free agent signings next offseason. I think a lot of fans, and I, I put myself in this category of people that expected the Giants to be good this season, potentially competitive, maybe trying to get around that 83-85 win range if all came together well. And then looking ahead, seeing some of the prospects, maybe an outfielder like Elliot Ramos or in a dream scenario, Marco Luciano, catcher Joey Bart, obviously, make an impact, prove they could be everyday players for the future of this franchise, and then looking ahead you know, to competing with the Dodgers and Padres down the line. And of course, we're only about 20 games into the season. We're barely an eighth of the way through this Major League Baseball regular season, but through that, the Giants have one of the best records not only in the National League West, not only in the National League, but in all of Major League Baseball. They just took three out of four in a series against the Miami Marlins and are now eight excuse me, 14 and 8 on the season as they get ready to host the Colorado Rockies, easily the worst team in the National League West, for a three-game set starting tomorrow. I'm recording this on Sunday night. Most of you will likely be listening to this, I imagine, on Monday morning, uh, just to give you a rundown of where the schedule is looking ahead, they host the Rockies for three games. They get a day off on Thursday. Then they travel down to South to Southern California to take on the San Diego Padres, easily one of the biggest competitors in the National League West, before heading up to Colorado for a three-game set against the Rockies before heading back home to play the Padres again. So over the next 12 games, six of them are going to be against the Rockies. Six of them are going to be against the Padres. And what's interesting about that is that gives them an incredible opportunity with a strong stretch to give themselves a bit of breathing room in the NL West picture. Of course, coming into the year, it was the Padres and Los Angeles Dodgers that were the clear favorites, frankly, in the National League, not just the National League West. The Padres are 13-11. They've had a fine start to the season, but the Giants sit one game ahead of them. Of course, the Rockies, the only team in the division currently below 500 at 8-13. and If the Giants can take five out of six from Colorado, and if they could just, you know, split their six games with the Padres, that could potentially give them, you know, they currently have a two-game gap between them and San Diego. That could stretch to a four- or five-game margin. Again, there's plenty of season left. We are far, in my opinion, far away from a point where we're talking about the Giants as National League West competitors. But when you're thinking about the mindset of the franchise, when you're thinking about the mindset of the players, the coaches, the front office, the entire organization, you want to see this team rack up as many wins as possible. And of course, as a fan, you want to see that too. But you know, when you're running an organization, when you're playing on a team, you believe you can win until you are eliminated, or at least you want to. And so, you know, the Giants trying to carry this early season momentum. They are, of course, one game behind the Dodgers, who sit at 15-7. and seven. They just have an incredibly stacked lineup, rotation. They still have a strong farm system. The Giants have the second best record in all of baseball. But they are in second place in their own division because, of course, 
they're with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So because it's been a while, I'm going to talk about what's happened these last couple weeks, and I won't get into too many specifics. We don't need to get into the games, whether it be the Reds, Marlins, or Philly series, but I do want to talk about some of the trends that you know I've talked about on social media, some of our uh, contributors alongside myself and uh, other co-side expert Jeff Young have written about over at AroundTheFoghorn.com. Again, if you want to stay up to date on all the latest Giants news and rumors, make sure to follow us on Twitter at RoundTheFoghorn. You can also uh, like or follow our page on Facebook, as well as, of course, check out our website. But the one thing that has been, I think, the biggest surprise to almost everyone is how the Giants have won games. You know, it wasn't inconceivable that the Giants would have a stretch where they won 14 out of 22 games this season. I imagine, you know, last season, the way they played, there there were stretches. I'm not sure if they did this exactly, but at least came close to this. But the way they did it last season was, was far differently. It was when they were at their best, it was an offensive lineup that was incredibly deep that was putting up six, seven, eight runs seemingly every game. And even if their starting pitchers struggled on a starting pitching struggled on occasion, their bullpen pulled it together well enough and their offense carried them to victories. That has not been the case this year at all. This offense has been rather middling. Now, you know, it's had its uh, cold spells. It's still roughly been league average in terms of production, and that's been carried actually by the long ball. The Giants have been hitting some of home runs at some of the highest rates in all of baseball. But it's been the starting pitching, a rotation, a ragtag group, it seems, of players like Aaron Sanchez and Alex Wood, who barely pitched over the past two seasons because of injuries. Kevin Gaussman building on his career 2020 season and looking like a legitimate ace. And if it weren't for Jacob deGrom with the New York Mets, he might be an early season favorite for the National League. Cy Young, we had Johnny Cueto get off to a hot start. Of course, he got injured and is on the injured list. He's likely going to miss another set through the rotation, which has pushed Logan Webb back in. But Logan Webb, and that's where we're going to start because Logan Webb pitched in today's, the final game of the series against the Marlins. Of course, the Giants are victorious 4-3, to but Webb was fantastic during seven shutout innings, striking out eight, walking just three. And, you know, Webb had started the year in the rotation while Alex Wood was on the IL, had some... You know, let's say non-ideal starts, I think it's fair to say. You know, I think about five innings, you know, three runs apiece. He wasn't shutting anyone down. But he's now made four starts on the season. And there's a trend I've been noticing. And we saw Webb have this dominant spring training. And a lot of people, including myself, were very high on his prospects for this season. But after those starts, some of those, you know, expectations began to wane. People were saying it's the same old web from last season. And I'm here to tell you one thing we're seeing already that is different than the Logan Webb we've ever seen before with the San Francisco Giants. Through four starts, he has, you know, whiff rate is a, is a common stat we turn to, especially when we're looking at sort of the more uh, advanced sort of analytical data. And the reason we turn to whiff rate is it's a simple stat. How many times did opponents swing against your pitches? And how many times did they whiff? How many times did they swing and make no contact? You know, it's, it's a good stat to evaluate a couple of things, right? One, are you fooling hitters? If you're not fooling hitters, they're not going to swing and miss very often. Two, is your stuff good enough that, you know, are they, is it maybe not good enough where even if they guess wrong, they can still foul it off? You know, whiffs are a good sign of how effective a pitcher is and how much big league hitters are struggling or not against their pitches. Coming into this season, Logan Webb had generated a whiff rate of 25% or better 
in just six career starts. So and let me count this up. In 19 career starts, about one in three appearances, he'd strike out, or excuse me, not strike out, he'd generate whiffs about one in four swings. In his four starts thus far this year, he's eclipsed 25% every time, and in fact, fairly easily. His lowest mark came in his first start of the year when he generated whiffs at a 29.3% rate. If you look at over the course of Webb's career the best appearances in terms of which of whiff weight whiff rate and you rank them of the top six four of those appearances came so far this season he had never generated whiffs in the double digits, never generated 10 or more swings and misses in back-to-back starts in his career entering this season. Through four starts, he's generated at least 11 in each of those appearances. And so while this was the first start where we got to see a quote-unquote dominant Logan Webb in terms of his ability to limit an opponent's offenses score on the scoreboard, if we look back at his three previous appearances, he's actually been getting similar results with his pitches when we look at how hitters are receiving them. Now, again, you know, he's not going to be this dominant. You can see some pretty easy batted ball luck when you look at the appearances. Again, he walked more than you'd like to see. He had a couple hit batters as well, and there's still some things he needs to clean up. But I want fans to realize that the Logan Webb we've seen in 2021, even in those first three starts, even when the earned run average looked just like 2020 or 2019 Logan Webb, that we're seeing an effectiveness from him in the rotation that we have not seen before. And that's a fantastic sign, not only for this season, but of course, beyond this season, when the future of the starting rotation is even more up in arms. On the offensive side, I mentioned these slow starts. We talk about Mike Yastrzemski has been an easy one. I'm going to have a piece coming up on Around the Foghorn later this week about his struggles because, you know, in some sense, Yastrzemski really hasn't had a big slump thus far in his big league career since when the Giants first called him up. Many might forget this, but when he was first called up to the big leagues, he was he struggled, and the Giants were going to option him back to AAA, but an injury and a trip to Coors Field, he stayed on the roster. He had an incredible series, stay on the roster, and the rest is somewhat history, and this is the worst stretch of play he's had really since that point, but I'm going to point to one thing in the article, and I won't get into the weeds of it, but to give you a little sneak peek, it all comes back to his two-strike hitting. Last season, Yastrzemski, we, we all were going crazy about it. He had like eight or nine home runs in two-strike counts. I think he was hitting like 300 in two-strike counts. And while that was incredible at the time, I remember Grant Brisby over the Athletic did a piece talking about his approach, talking about his ability to foul off tough pitches, to take ones that weren't great to see that weren't easy to square up and drive the ones that he could. But the one thing I think many of us missed, and I'll, I'll include myself in this, is that as good as Yastrzemski's two-strike approach may be, hitting with two strikes is incredibly difficult. When you look at even the best hitters in baseball, it is not sustainable to be a league average hitter with two strikes for the most part. And Yastrzemski has come down to earth. We've, you know, in statistics speak, he's had regression to the mean, and it's kind of 
overreacted to the other way and it swung in the other direction. And that's really the the big piece that's driving his slow start to the season. That two-strike ability, that two-strike hitting is just not at the same level it was last season. And again, I'm not too worried about it because Yastrzemski is not as good a hitter with two strikes as he was in 2020, but he's not as bad a two-strike hitter as he has been so far in 2021. And I expect over time that'll even out and he'll end up being the above-average everyday player we've come to see. But the thing about that, in today's game, Yastrzemski had to leave, I believe it was an oblique, with an injury. And we'll see over the next couple days whether that's a day-to-day thing, whether he has to sit out, or whether he has to be placed on the injured list. Because that's been another quiet early season story. It's been overshadowed by the victories. But the offense has already been hit quite a bit. And frankly, if you look at Cueto's injury, the, the, the entire roster has been hit pretty heavily by early season injuries. Nothing that has eliminated anyone for the season, but it has complicated and taken a shot at their depth. Donovan Solano went on the injured list earlier this week, and he's going to miss at least a few weeks. And, you know, it's just going to force Tommy LaStella pretty much into an everyday role at second base, which, of course, makes it more difficult to find Evan Longoria days off. But Evan Longoria has an injury of his own. He couldn't play today, and Wilmer Flores slot in at third base in his absence. And then Wilmer Flores had to leave the game today. Now, Flores, it looks like, has an injury. So, you know, or not, excuse me, not an injury. It looks like he's been dealing, he's dealing with an illness, a cold or, or flu bug, presumably with the way players are, we at least are told are COVID-19 tested. I don't believe that's a reason for concern there, but you know, just a flu bug or stomach bug or something to that effect. But, you know, even if Flores is healthy, not having, you know, if Longoria has to go on the IL, which is something that was being talked about, and it, I wouldn't sh- be shocked if Yastrzemski's injury is only a couple days, if Longoria ends up on the IL so the Giants can bring another outfielder, uh, Lamont Wade uh, Jr., as Steven Duggar, to, you know, spell Yastrzemski a bit over the coming days. But we, we talked about the strength of the Giants lineup was not in its star power. It, it, it was in its depth. It was in the options it had. So they could go with Tommy LaStella or Donovan Solano. They could go with Evan Longoria or LaStella or Brandon Crawford or Mauricio Dubon or in the corners, you know, Darren Ruff or Brandon Belt. But early in the season, that depth is now going to be pushed. And we're going to have to see some players. There's going to be more righties. Who, you know, There are going to be more players who the Giants have benefited greatly from their abilities in platoons, whether that be Alex Dickerson or Darren Ruff or Flores, who are going to have to be productive against same-sided pitchers in a way they probably haven't been in some time. And that's going to lead, put a lot of of pressure on the pitching staff if some of the hitters don't answer that call. And that's where I'm not concerned because I I do think, again, there's no major injuries yet. This is a relatively old roster. This is the one thing as Farhan Zaidi has improved the depth of this organization. The big league roster still remains quite old. You still have Buster Posey. You know, you still have Evan Longoria. You still have Brandon Crawford and Brandon Bell. And of course, you, you know, you've added players like Flores and Lestella, who by no means are young players. Even Yastrzemski, as young as his big league career is, is, you know, in his late 20s, about to be 30 years old, far from a young player. So you're going to expect a lot of these minor injuries to pile up over the course of the season. And Again, this is why you you stockpile depth. I was someone throughout the offseason was talking about the Giants should look to trade a Donovan Solano or Darren Ruff in a minor move to create roster flexibility, maybe 
add another starting pitcher spot, make it easier to add another bullpen arm. And I credit Farhan Zaidi for thinking about something that I probably overlooked, which is that, you know, these quote-unquote crowded positions tend to sort themselves out. Players either underperform unexpectedly or deal with injuries. Had they traded Solano, you know, granted he's on the IL right now, but it could just as easily have been Listella hurt, and so, and then you have no one who you trust to turn to or you're forced to put Jason Vossler in an everyday role before you maybe think he's ready. That's what happened last season, you know, when the Giants thought that they were going to have Buster Posey in 2020. And again, no fault of theirs. They didn't know a pandemic was going to come that would, you know, lead Posey to say, I'm not going to, you know, put me and my family at risk of contracting, uh, you know, a major virus, one of the most deadly viruses in the past century. And so, you know, they were forced to promote a prospect in Joey Bart, or they felt forced to do that because they didn't have another option. And they've put themselves in positions where for the pretty much across the board, they're not in a, they're not forced to do that, which brings me to an interesting part of the Yastrzemski injury. We'll see how serious it is in the coming days. And those maybe by tomorrow morning, they say it's day to day. He's good to go. I do wonder, and I think I'm, I'm not, I'm getting ahead of questions because I imagine there will be people asking me this on Twitter over the next few days. If Yastrzemski has to go on the injured list is that, will we see Elliot Ramos who had a great spring training has looked really good at the alternate site from all reports top outfielder prospect in the system, you know, you know, obviously on a day-to-day thing, they might just go with a Wade or a Duggar, but could they say if there's an extended period of playing time to be had because Yastrzemski has to miss two to four weeks or, you know, let's say Slater under, you know, suffered an injury or Dickerson suffered an injury, would they be willing to give him a chance to play every day for an extended period of time? I lean towards no. Because one, they'd have to clear a spot on the 40-man roster, and those are things, those are spots that Zaidi has not taken lightly over his tenure. However, I do think it's something that the franchise will surely consider. And again, we don't get the full box scores from the alternate site, so we don't really know how good Ramos is doing. We know he's put up a, quite a bit of highlights, um, but but you know maybe he's striking out a lot, maybe he's not. I don't know. If I if I had those numbers, I'd be a bit more confident. I can tell you this: if he's not striking out, if he's walking at a good rate. I think we see Elliot Ramos very quickly, especially if there's an injury that forces one of the everyday outfielders to miss some time, and I think that becomes even more. Pressing, and again, I don't think they're going to put Ramos in a position if they don't think he's ready, like they may have done with Bart last season. But it is worth pointing out, Slater is playing a lot of center field right now, pretty much in an everyday role, because you know he can hit well against lefties. And Mauricio Dubon's bat has been struggling to start the year. Brandon Crawford dealt was under the dealing with something on his own today, so Dubon had to slide. To shortstop, but Slater is by no means, you know, putting up great offensive numbers. Dickerson isn't putting up great offensive numbers. Yastrzemski isn't putting up great offensive numbers. These are guys who, while they were in smaller roles, Slater missed a lot of time with injury last season, actually put up all-star caliber offensive performances last season in that condensed 60-game season. We just, you know, didn't put it in that context for, you know, obvious reasons. There were a lot of caveats to put on it. But if they're getting, you know, more of what about what it's looking like, you know, they're getting over the last couple of weeks is league average, maybe slightly above average production. You wonder if a player, like, it's easier for a player like Ramos to play his way into a promotion. And again, from what we saw in spring training, from what it we could be seeing, what potentially is showing off at the alternate site, I do wonder if that could be in play sooner rather than later. 
again, I don't want to really get too ahead of myself. I don't necess- I'm not saying by any means I, I think that's going to happen in the next week or two, but I, I do want to get ahead of it because it's going to be something that comes up, especially once there are tri- is there's a triple-A season and we have these box scores and we have these numbers in front of us, and if Elliot Ramos gets off to a, a hot start at triple-A, and I think, again, if Yastrzemski is still struggling or is injured or you know if, if Slater is struggling, again, I think Slater is a big one because Slater is capable of playing center field and is a right-handed bat who's playing a lot against left-handed pitching. You know, I, Ramos is a right-handed bat who's had some platoon splits in the past who can play center field. I think Slater is the one. If Slater struggles, and he's picked up his play. He got off to a really bad start alongside Yastrzemski. Both have picked it up a bit, Slater more so. If Slater continues slumping, if he returns to that slump, I think it's very likely we see Ramos at some point potentially early in the summer. If Slater rebounds and is sort of at the midpoint of what he's done this year and last year, he's put up like 800 OPS, I think then there's even less pressure for a Ramos promotion for some time. And the last thing I'll talk about today before I let everyone go is the bullpen. Because I have been someone who's been highly critical of Gabe Kapler. Uh, highly critical. Uh, most particularly his use of relievers on back-to-back days. Last season, he the Giants dwarfed other franchises in terms of the number of relievers they used on back-to-back days. Early this season, he's done it quite a bit once again. And, and just as maybe upsetting isn't the right word, but just not my cup of tea, I guess, he's used his high-leverage arms, Jake McGee and Tyler Rogers. McGee, uh, most particularly as someone who has a history of shoulder injuries, is up there in age quite a bit. And that he used them both in a four-run game not too long ago. Let me pull up the specific game because I want to get this right, I believe. Yeah, here it is. So on Friday, April 23rd, the Giants won 5-3. They beat the Marlins 5-3. Alex Wood had a great start, seven innings, a one-run ball. But when he gets pulled from the game, the Giants are leading five. Uh, when Wood gets pulled as a pinch hitter in the bottom of the seventh inning, the Giants are at the time leading 2-1. to one. By the end of the seventh, they're leading 5 to run a four-run lead. He uses Rodgers in the top of the eighth. Now, this one I'm not as critical of because the Giants have a four-run lead, but Rodgers had probably already gotten warm because it was a two-run lead You know when they pinch hit for Wood, and so, you know, you, you or it was only a one-run lead, actually, it was two-to-one at the time, so, you know, you're probably going to use your setup closer, but then, after Rodgers throws a shutout eighth inning, he chooses to use McGee, McGee gives up a, a, a pair of runs, granted, uh, I believe none, neither were earned um, because of an error, but that's either here nor there, it's just, again, when you have someone who you want to be cautious of their usage, you know, you... You again. You want to be cautious of their usage because, in my opinion, you know, if you're in a four-run, if you have a four-run lead, I I have to ask myself: Do I trust trust a, a young Camilo Duvall or a uh, Wandy Peralta or a Caleb Berger, you know, uh, Matt, even Matt Whistler, to, who's someone I'm lower on, but you know, to to get the job done, and I can save McGee, and I know McGee will be more rested for the next day, and while the Giants won that day. The next game, next day, yesterday on Saturday, I guess two days ago when most of you will be listening to this, Kevin Gaussman, eight innings, 11 strikeouts, one earned run. He is pulled from the game because it's it's a one-to-one tie going into the top of the ninth inning. A situation where, you know, the top of the ninth in a tie game, not out of the question for a 
manager to use their closer. You know, try to shut it down and get a run in the bottom of the ninth and win. Instead, I imagine trying to limit Rodgers and McGee's usage, he goes to rookie Gregory Santos, who was just called up Santos and Doval, two impressive fireballer relievers, been talked about for some time. Santos was just converted to a relief ball this spring. Doval has been a reliever for some time. But, you know, they have, you know, they're still young. They, they are players who, I have no problem using Santos in this situation. I want to be very clear about that because I saw people being critical of using Santos in this situation. I'm never going to be critical of a manager using a young player, even in a high-pressure situation, assuming that player is healthy, that player is well-rested, and that player, you know, there isn't some extreme platoon disadvantage or some other mitigating factor. If that player, you know, Santos has shown premium stuff, I want to challenge him in, you know, a tie game. Let's let's see how he reacts to this. If a reliever can't, if a prospect, you know, or a young player can't handle making one mistake or one bad outing or one bad at bat in, in a clutch situation, that's going to be a problem down the line. My issue isn't that he used Santos. My issue is that if he hadn't used McGee the night before, he probably uses McGee here. And this is where Kapler manages each game, at least in my opinion, Kapler manages each game almost like it's game seven. He manages it, right? And again, I imagine there's an analytical, you can do a certain statistical analysis that would justify this, right? Because if you have a lead today, you don't know if you'll have a lead tomorrow. So you want to make sure you do the most you can to win today. But I think sometimes Kapler gets a bit overly aggressive. And over the course of a 162-game season, that's going to have consequences. After today's game, Tyler Rogers is on pace for 103 appearances this season. One hundred and three. Now, obviously, that'll even out. I don't expect him to be used a hundred times, but it, it just goes to show that you know, for all the credit we've given Kapler for maximizing platoons on the offensive end, he'll pinch it a Darren Ruff for Alex Dickerson. He'll he's not afraid to make those offensive switches. And you think about it, it's actually probably pretty good for the offensive players because it means very few times is a player spending a day there's a game and they're not getting at least one at bat. It's keeping everyone fresh. The problem is he's kind of had the same approach with the pitching staff, especially with the bullpen. And I'm not of the belief that pitching is equal to hitting. We know Pitching is stressful on the arm. We know pitching can, is something that is not, you do not have an infinite number of innings. And I do wonder if as this season goes on, that's going to bite the Giants. Now, for now, the Giants are winning. And there's going to be a cold spell. And during that cold spell, he probably won't need to use Rodgers or McGee that much, if at all. And that's probably what they're banking on. But again, given McGee's injury history, I just would be a bit more cautious. I would like to be a bit more cautious, right? He ended up using Gregory Santos. Now, I realized Gregory Santos, it would have been a back-to-back, so I wouldn't have used Gregory Santos in this night. But um, let's, you know, give an example. Actually, excuse me, I forgot a big part of this. Not only did the Giants have a 4-1 lead when he used McGee and Rodgers, but they had also pitched the day before. So he used them on back-to-back days with a four-run lead. Now, again, I have to ask myself, would I rather use my 
closer and setup players with a four-run lead on back-to-backs, which pretty much means I can't use them the next day or use a player like Camilo Doval, who'd had a day off at that point, a player like Caleb Berger, who had a couple days off, Wandy Peralta, I believe, had a couple days off at that point. Instead, what ends up happening is he uses Rodgers and McGee with four-run leads, relatively low-leverage situations, and then uses Santos in a high-leverage tied game top of the ninth next day because he mismanaged that. Now, again, you can point to other examples where you know that lower risk, that, that quote-unquote more cautious approach I would have advocated might have bit the Giants. But again, I just think Kapler's management of rest is his biggest, has been his most b- biggest flaw as a manager from his time in Philadelphia through his entire two-season tenure with the San Francisco Giants. And again, I just don't think it's a good way to approach developing and building a bullpen long-term. We've seen what Doval and Santos are capable of. There's going to be more young relievers down the line. And I just don't know if Kapler is doing a good job of fostering and building a bullpen that's going to be conducive to maximizing young players' careers. But that has been half an hour. Again, we're going to get back to doing this twice a week. We get, we gotten away from that, but we'll be back doing this twice a week. I'll try to have a, we'll be having a guest on, if not on Wednesday. We'll definitely have a guest on next Sunday to talk all the latest happening news and maybe even some rumors in San Francisco Giants baseball. I'm your host, Mark DeLuke. You can follow me on Twitter at Mad DeLuke. That is M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. And of course, this has been the 24th episode of Sound the Foghorn. Make sure to rate us, review us, give us those five-star reviews, and if you do, leave a question in the comments in the comment, and I will make sure to answer it alongside one of my guests on a future episode. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.